This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield on RN Summer. Not just any minefield, the best of the minefield. The best we could come up with in 2020. A strange year for us, of course, because so much changed throughout the year and so so many of the shows that we did suddenly sounded completely different mere moments after we'd done them. This show, in some ways, doesn't, but in other ways does profoundly, I think, uh, Scott. Sorry, I should say, well, Ed Ali, my name, Scott Stevens, my co-host. Um, because... This show grew out of what we thought was going to be the big story that would echo into eternity for yeah, 2020. That's true. And that was the bushfires, yeah. which, of course, now seems like the mind, it's the undercard of 2020 because of everything that's happened with COVID-19. And uh, who knows what's in store for the, the summer of 2020, 2021, of course, and then summers beyond. So it's a strange one, this one, in the, in the place that it occupies as far as immediacy and relevance. It's simultaneously less relevant, but, it's, but eternally relevant. Yeah, you know what I, mean. I think that's exactly right. And I think one of, the things, one of the things that I'm really glad that we discussed repeatedly over the course of the year was time. And one of the things that trying to think carefully about trees, about our moral obligations to them, about whether we have moral obligations to them, about whether it makes sense to think about our relationship with trees in terms of morality or in terms of moral obligation, whether it makes sense to think about trees as possibly existing in a kind of moral community with us or in a form of moral, not just existential symbiosis. These are all things that demand unbelievably long timeframes in order to take into account in order to allow the moral resonances to really sink in. I was proud of this show, Waleed. I'm very, very glad we did it. I'm glad we did it the way that we did it. And I do continue to hope that what we discussed with a remarkable academic named Natasha Myers continues to reverberate even as the rest of 2021 continues to gather pace. And what I learned from this show is never give Scott a dare to do a subject because he will run memory. with it like nothing else. Good okay. memory. That's, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. And yeah, yeah. I'm I'm happy with what we did. Well, here's the result of the dare. Enjoy. There is something about the sight of life struggling, simply wanting to soak up the sun, simply wanting to be that it just, it always strikes me with a degree of reverence, almost a kind of sacredness. You ought to hesitate in front of it. This thing exists in itself, not simply for you. I guess I should also say that the other thing that's behind that, there was this really, uh, it's a strange observation from a philosopher that I love, Simone Weil, who said mm. that there are very few formulae that are as sacred as this. Two plus two equals four. You ought to get down on your knees in front of something like that, because that is something that exists whether you want it to or not. It doesn't exist for you. It is there, and therefore it demands of you humility and accommodation. I guess it just seems to me, Willie, that we, we live in an epidemic of use value. We reduce things to the use that we want to make of it. All sorts of things, things that ought to be out of bounds or off limits or that ought to be scandals that could potentially at least either bring about a form of political repentance or overthrow a government. These things are being routinely dismissed uh, and other things that ought to be off bounds, that ought to be beyond the pale, are then used in order to score political points. It just strikes me that 
We've managed to turn so much of our world that demands a kind of sacred regard, a hesitation in the face of it. We've turned these things into things that exist simply for our sake. And if they don't exist for us, then they may as well not exist at all. Mm. Things to be conquered. Things to be conquered. I, I think that's exactly right. Things to, in fact, be bent to our will. So we should say that something terrible, in fact, did take place in the final months of 2019. We saw the destruction of forests, the immolation of wildlife on, frankly, an unimaginable scale. Across Australia, more than 10 million hectares have been burned. That includes 80% of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area and more than half of the World Heritage-listed Gondwana Rainforest. Now, these are all areas that have historically simply been too wet to burn. More than 100 threatened species have been brought closer to extinction because of these fires, and it's estimated that a billion animals have burnt to death in these summer infernos. It's with good reason, I think, Waleed, that Danielle Salamar from University of Sydney has said we need to come up with a new phrase to try to get our minds around the scale, the totality of this destruction. This is more than just ecocide. This is omnicide. This is the killing of everything. The environmental consequences of these blazes are obvious to all of us. The effect that they'll have on the air that we breathe, the huge amounts of carbon that have been further released into our already carbon-saturated atmosphere, not to mention the carbon that will not be filtered out of the air by the trees that have been reduced to ash. But I think that beneath all of this, there's something that really gives me pause. It strikes me that the emotional content that has been brought to the surface by these fires, and this is completely understandable, the emotional content really has been in response, I think, to the loss of human life, the loss of homes and livelihood, and also for the loss of some non-human animals. Again, this is all completely understandable. But I wonder, why do we grieve fauna and not flora? Why do we not grieve the trees, not because of what they do for us or what they now can't do for us, but because of the trees themselves, because of the depth of relationship that we have or can have with trees, not because of the use they have for us, but because of the dignity that trees have in themselves. Now, this all sounds pretty convoluted, so let me try to put it a bit more simply. What if these fires for all of their tragedy, for the immensity of the devastation, for the loss of human, of non-human, of non-animal life, what if they present to us an invitation that we most often ignore, an invitation to rediscover something like moral companionship, even moral community with trees? Okay, let me tease out what you mean. Moral community. Mm. Are you distinguishing this from say, political community or legal community or some other notion of social community? Uh, probably not political community because I find political community itself as being a moral organization. In other words, a form of life together whereby we oblige one another in common tasks and we have processes of reciprocal sacrifice and restoration. Ooh, but this is complicated if you're going to draw an equivalence between political and moral community because what then do you do about anyone who's beyond the border of the nation state? Ah, yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, I'm probably not going that far in terms of, say, political identity or the identity okay. that marks the bounds of, of political community. But insofar as I think democracy, especially democracy, is actually a form 
form of reciprocal and sacrifice-inducing community, then I think there is probably an overlap there. What I mean by moral community is that there is a process of reciprocity, of mutual giving and mutual benefit that is expected, that is invited, uh, and that we dismiss that essentially as a form of of anti-moral hubris. Okay, but you seem to want to go further than that in that I think you are talking the language of rights and obligations as well, aren't you? So that in your, um, what do I call this, politico-moral scheme, Mm -hmm. you would have, let's take trees because that's what we're talking about today, you would have trees as moral and legal beings that have rights conferred upon them and have obligations upon us mm-hmm. or impose obligations upon us. Would that be a fair summation? Because I'm a little bit skeptical about the language of rights, what I would and if we regard rights as a kind of slightly watered down secular conception of, say, a sacred notion of dignity, I would in fact say that trees have a dignity that is their own and that is a form of invitation to be regarded. But rights, I, mean, I don't mean to divert, but no. rights aren't a, a secular notion. I mean, r- rights is, exists in religious traditions. Of course they do. Of course they do. But, well. but I do mean human rights as currently used within human rights discourse. They are... Well, no, we can't talk about human rights because trees aren't human. No, that's well, exactly... I, right. I'm not interested in that. I'm, mm. I'm just saying that we, you're talking about rights and obligations. Yes. I mean, however formed, that's, that's kind of what you mean, right? Sure. Okay, so then I think the question, I think this is very interesting because I'm well prepared to go that far with you. I don't know exactly how far you want to go and whether or not I'm prepared to follow you, so we'll find that out throughout the course of the show. But I suppose the question, remember we've had all those discussions about human rights and the assertion of human rights and the crisis within human rights because increasingly as we've become more and more secular, um, we find it difficult to articulate a basis on which human rights can plausibly be asserted. Mm -hmm. What's the basis? Or the basis upon which competing rights can, in fact, be reconciled. That's been the other. Well, yeah, but I think the idea of challenging the existence of rights in toto, because on what basis do you assert them, is a more fundamental and interesting Mm. one for us to grappling with. And it's also the one that applies more directly to your quest for the rights of trees here, isn't it? So the question then becomes... On what basis do you want to assert this right? What's the ontology for you that undergirds or underwrites all this? Mm, interesting. It is curious that you've, in fact, I mean, by backing me into the corner and saying that what I'm, in fact, talking about here is rights and obligations, you're then saying that I'm after a quest for rights for trees. Again, that's not quite right. What I do think there is, uh, insofar as rights suggest a kind of autonomy that then needs to be regarded. That means that there is a certain non-transgressibility surrounding the bearer of that right, and that there is then a form of obligation upon those who who are in community with that bearer of rights. I mean, it's probably kind of getting close to the language that I want to use here. What I think we're really talking about here is something like companionability or the ability to regard trees as something like our comrades within a common form of life and a common cause. Can I just say that... Sure, sure, I understand that, but I'm interested in the ontology. Are you going to address the ontology? Yes, I am. Or the ontological point? Yes. So where this actually really came through for me 
uh, the first lowering, if you like, of my armor was in reading E.M. Forster's Howard's End. In Howard's End, there are two worlds. There is the world of concrete. There is the world of anger, of cars, and of telegraphs. That's the world that's famously associated with the Wilcox family, Henry Wilcox, this masculine figure in particular. And then there is the feminine world. This is the world of fields. This is the world of the country where cars constantly get bogged, where cars can't in fact drive. This is also the place where a particular house that is uniquely conducive to a form of moral life exists, this house called Howard's End. But when the main figure, uh, the main character in Howard's End first encounters the house, her name is Margaret Schlegel, she encounters this witch elm, this enormous ancient tree that inclines itself over this house, almost embracing it, giving it shelter, giving it cover, protecting it from the incursions of concrete and anger and cars and telegraphs. When Margaret's trying to find the right word to describe what is this tree to the house, she says it's not guardian precisely. It's not protector. In fact, it's not even totem. It's comrade. It's friend. And it just struck me. You then follow that thread through a whole string of different forms of literature from, say, Ursula Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest, where this masculine race has descended upon a planet and is raping and pillaging it, both quite literally, its inhabitants, and also for its trees. What I think the ontological basis of this is the fundamental reality, not of isolation, autonomy, and agency, but if you like the metaphysics of deep cooperation, of mutual sacrifice and mutual interdependency in advance. So for me, there's not some kind of underlying uh, series of attributes that certain things must have in order to belong in a community together. Instead, if you like, it's their mutual inclination towards one another in mutual dependence and therefore mutual making that I think is really powerful here. In other words, the ontological basis is relationality as such. Okay, I think that's fascinating. And I'm going to get out of the way because I know you've got a guest who's far more interesting and informed on all this than me. But the question that I have that I would like you guys to think about and talk about is I hear that. I don't know that I see the trees dependent on us. Trees, I think, are doing just fine without us. It's only in our presence that the problems start, it seems to me. So if it's interdependence rather than merely dependence, that is our dependence on trees, then I'm not sure that the ontology quite works. Mm -hmm. It would be easily amended to work, I think, but yeah. I'm just not sure it quite articulates the truth of it. Yeah. I mean, I, what, I, what I would simply say in response to that, though, is for there to be that mutual form of interdependence, there does, of course, require a transformation in the mode of human being in the world. I think that's, the, that's where the human sacrifice does, in but fact. But even then, what's the, in, what's the interdependence? Well, I anyway. see. I think there is, and that's where our guest comes in. Good. This will be exciting. Nice. You are listening to The Minefield. Uh, you might be doing that on the radio machine, in which case, thank you very much for doing that. But I should let you know, it is also a podcast, and the podcast is great because we just keep going beyond the 25 minutes that we have allotted on the radio, uh, and that includes uh, with our guests. So we just 
keep going until we get sick of it. Or actually, no, we get going for another 10, 15 minutes and then they cut the lines. <laughs> but you can listen to the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app. You can also subscribe to The Minefield, if you like, on your podcast platform of choice. And this is the part of the show where the guest joins us and sets us straight. Scott. I know what listeners are thinking. Where on earth in the world are you going to find somebody to talk on this particular topic and to make sense of it? Well, have we got a guest for you? Natasha Myers is Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology, which is actually itself kind of funny, isn't it, Natasha? In the, in the Department of Anthropology at York University in Toronto. She joins us by Skype. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. It's absolutely a pleasure, so thank you. So, so, so look, I've used language to try to accommodate myself to this particular conversation, because I'm still trying to, I'll, I'll confess to you, I'm still trying to get my my moral arms around this particular equation. I realize that I may well have used language and concepts that you do not want to subscribe to, that you yourself would not use. But help us through this, Natasha. Let's begin with Waleed's mm. question. What is in it for trees, for this mm. kind of relational uh, or, or inherently cooperative form of relation? Oh, wonderful. This is a wonderful question for us to begin with. And I really, I appreciated your reaching towards a kind of a, the, the mutual making, the relationality between uh, plants and people as the origin for the starting point for our conversation. So um, one of the things that we really need to understand um, about plants is that they are up to stuff. And so when we stand in reverence at their marvelous striving for life, as you described, it's not just that they're in and of themselves present in the world and that's how, how we should come to revere them. But when we start to reckon with the incredible gifts that plants have given us is, is this place in which we can begin to start to sense that reciprocity, begin to be able to breathe with the plants who've actually breathed us into being. And so we can, of course, look to photosynthesis, um, that remarkable capacity that plants have to reach across the cosmos, to draw in the sun's energy, to do their amazing magical work on Earth, which is to synthesize incredible compounds, to grow their bodies into remarkable forms, to produce these incredible scents, pleasurable tastes, powerful um, uh, medicines for us. And so, of course, you know, we can come to see that incredible dependency that humans have on plants, that incredible way that we are reliant on plants as the substance, substrate, scaffolding, symbol, sign um, of all of our political economies and cultures the world over. And so that question of like, well, what do plants need from us? And this is that moment when we have to reckon with the fact that humans have at a really deep, in a really deep way, commandeered the globe. We have um, etched out in our maps through laws, legal frameworks, through national boundaries, uh, boundaries around gardens, around parks, around cities, farms, etc. These enclosures, we have the responsibility and power to control who lives and dies with inside our enclosures. And so what plants and trees especially really do need from us is something that Scott described as a real uh, is a revolution in our understanding of what it means to be human. It means that our reverence for them, for the work that they do to nourish and feed and clothe and shelter us, is about us learning how to give them space and time to do their 
practice life um, in the ways that they need to practice life, which is through decomposition, through growth, through feeding and nourishing all the insects, the birds, the animals, and the other creatures that live around them. And so there's an incredible uh, thickness to the relations that plants have created. They are world makers. And so one of the things that we have to come into into grips with is what is our role, what is our relation to them that will allow them to flourish. And part of of my thinking about this um, comes from beginning the thought from inside of worlds where plants and people have become co-conspirators to one another. And there are many places on this planet that are sites where plants and people have learned to conspire with one another. And I love this concept of conspiracy when we think about our relationships to plants, because the root of the word to uh, conspire is to breathe together. Mm. And so literally this idea of forming solidarities with the plants to recognize them as comrades and to do, and to begin to work in service of the plants is to be able to sort of step into that conspiracy that we could where we could begin to grow livable worlds the plants. And one of those sites where we recognize that in fact that this idea that humans are in the way, right? That humans are in the way of plants thriving, that, oh, maybe the planet and all these plants and trees would do better without us, you know, dreaming a world without humans, dreaming the world after apocalypse where plants could, um, you know, explode with their unfettered powers. You know, as soon as we remove the humans, we've actually done an incredible disservice to plants. So I do a lot of my research and thinking from inside of a remarkable ecology called an oak savanna. And savannas are remarkable ecologies the world over. Oak savannas are particular ecologies where that could not survive without people. They are fire-dependent ecologies that depend not on random lightning strikes to activate fires, but they depend on people with the knowledge of fire to use that fire to regenerate landscapes. Oak savannas have widely spaced oak trees with tall prairie grasses and wildflowers growing between them. They're incredible sites for hunting. They're sites with incredibly nourishing foods, acorns, um, other uh, nut trees love to thrive there. Um, They're amazing spaces for growing gardens, uh, for collecting medicines, and for conducting ceremony. And oak savannas If you took the people out of the oak savanna, very quickly it would transform into a thickly grown forest. There would be no, that would make it harder for hunting, would make it harder to gather foods. And so I'm interested in these sites where we need people to stay the course. We need people to develop intimate relationships with the plants and intimate relationships with the land to actually get more people onto the land, cultivating it, tending it, and um, and nourishing it in ways that allow ecologies like this to thrive. And so there are forest gardens they're discovering throughout the Amazon that, in fact, the Amazon rainforest is not um, is not as pure space devoid of humans. It was actually cultivated and shaped by people in intimate relations over thousands and thousands of years. And I live and work on lands um, where the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe peoples, the Wendat, the peoples of the first peoples of, um, 
these lands that are now called Canada, they were here for thousands of years tending these lands and making them livable, making them places to thrive. And so there are these spaces where we have to really realize that we can't take the people out of the equation. And in fact, the, the trees depend on the people to bring fire and also uh, for their ceremonies and for their reverence in order to create livable conditions that will thrive for everyone. So I'm really interested in this, the, po- the possibility of us opening up a conversation where the figure of the human is no longer, where the human is no longer in control, and yet we are now in a space of shared uh, relationality, of reciprocity, and of responsivity to the demands of the plants. What do the plants need? What can we offer them, and how can we transform their livability? I think perhaps that conversation can begin right now in the podcast, actually, (laughs) um, because I'm interested in what exactly that looks like. Yeah, that's a very comprehensive answer, right. but, but flesh on those bones would be fascinating. So Natasha Myers is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at York University in Toronto, or Toronto, I think I meant to say. Uh, I guess for this week's edition of The Mindfield, the radio portion of which is now at an end. The podcast will continue now and we'll see you next week on the radio. So, Natasha, let's pick up precisely Waleed's question there, because I think it's relatively, it is kind of funny, isn't it, that of all the forms of literature that have been able to imagine forms of robust and different looking human life that accommodates itself rather than presuming some kind of position of superiority over uh, the plant world. It really has been science fiction genres more than anything else. It's kind of imagined that it takes that kind of imaginative leap. But it also strikes me that we can more easily these days imagine something like global apocalypse where the trees, like in M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Happening, you know, where trees emit a kind of deadly poison that eradicate humans from the globe. We can more easily imagine a world almost entirely without humans and taken back over by plants than we can a world where humans have in fact accommodated themselves to live in a manner that I think can probably only be described as nonviolently or appropriately uh, or, you know, something that finds a kind of shared or a common home. Are there, I, I don't want to use this word, I just can't think of another. Are there forms where the plant world has intruded or been allowed back into what we would describe as, say, civic life, not so much civilization, that can kind of help us imagine what this kind of relationality might look like in everyday life? Hmm. Guerrilla gardening is sort of what I'm thinking. Um, right. So, so if we were to look around our cities and our towns and our you know urban spaces as well as our rural spaces, I mean, the plants actually dominate. Um, they push up through the concrete. They, you know, pushing through the fences. Their um, their forces and powers are really clear around us. And part of I think part of the the problem is this kind of plant blindness. This, you know, it's only been a few generations of people where 
we are no longer dependent on the seasons, where we are no longer dependent on our the gardens that are growing just outside of our homes. We're no longer uh, dependent on on plant life as the source of our nourishment and our medicine. We have been estranged from that, and so we're we lack the familiarity with plants. We lack the ability to see them, to see that they're up to stuff, and to see how they do life and that what their teachings really are, how they could teach us. Um, how to do sociality different, how to do our own lives differently. And so part of it is about waking up to their sheer presence and the voluminous presence of them in our lives and the force that they are, you know, could be teaching us. But can can I just ask you here, though? I mean, what you're describing is an aesthetic problem. I mean, not just a problem of vision. So what you described as plant blindness, which I'll I'll Mm -hmm. confess, I love it, resonates for me with Stanley Cavell's notion of the inability to see the human in another person. He describes that as soul blindness. Mm -hmm. I think that really works well. But there's a further aesthetic problem. I mean, if you're meaning, you know, sort of plants coming up through concrete, overtaking buildings, springing up in our backyards, overtaking gardens, that's also an aesthetic problem. Mm. I mean, our image of beauty is a manicured beauty. It's a cultivated and controlled. It's, it's dependent upon the ornamentalization of plants rather than the possibility that they might be co-conspirators or co-inhabitants with us. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, you know, a radical shift. I mean, and I, th- uh, you know, the Edenic vision of um, that is reproduced through the kind of garden architecture, the garden forms that we've inherited through a very Western conception um, come with an aesthetic form, which is, you know, you remove the decay, you, you know, you clear, you clear up the messy leaves, you, um, you weed out the plants that are out of place. And part of the work of of awakening to the force and power of plants in our our lives and our worlds and this incredible force with which they're making our worlds livable, giving us oxygen, you know, absorbing the carbon, uh, providing the nourishment, you know, building the soils. Part of that is to allow plants to sort of unfurl. And the fear and loathing (laughs) that this brings up for people is definitely about this kind of disruption to their aesthetic forms. And so there's an entrainment to, to new aesthetic forms, aesthetic forms that are perhaps maybe dictated by the plants themselves rather than the desires of us to prune them to our to our bidding, to make them serve our bidding, to either genetically modify them or, or cut them or tame them into our neat little gardens. It is about a disruptive form. And so the gorilla gardeners are this, you know, imagining the, the possibilities of the seed bombs thrown into um, sites of uh, industrial ruin that, you know, activate new plants to produce new forms of life in the ruins, right? These are these are counter practices that can push up against aesthetic forms that actually are keeping humans and plants separate. I um I have to confess, I'm not at all averse to what shall we call them? Non Western ontologies as far as plants are concerned. Um, So to give the most obvious and applicable example, within the Islamic tradition, there are really obvious things to be said for the non-human world um, as having inherent characteristics that are really important, for example. We understand them as being 
um, in a state of submission to God in a way that human beings are exhorted to be but cannot perfect, for example. So um, there's this classic verse, chronic verse, that talks about how the role of vicegerency has been given to human beings because it was first offered to the mountains and the mountains recognised the, the weight of it and then crumbled and only human beings were stupid and arrogant enough to take on <laughs> this role of being vicegerents, right? So there is an idea of, um, at the very least, a God consciousness within the Islamic tradition. And that's one example. I'm sure there are many other examples of non-Western traditions you could talk about. But... Having said all that as a caveat or a, a disclaimer, we are here trying to talk about the notion of community, of moral community and even of political community. And I wonder what, whether or not our concepts of community genuinely can stretch far enough to encompass beings that are not conscious of one another in the way that we typically imagine consciousness. So I hear everything that's being said about the consciousness of plants and plant sentience and all this sort of stuff. I understand that. But I don't think any of us truly believes that plants have a consciousness in the way that humans have a consciousness that makes community possible, such that community oh, exists. That. <laughs> oh, okay. No, and I'm interested, and I'm interested and in that of, dispute. Yeah, and part of that is, I mean, consciousness is the wrong term. And um, we have such um, impoverished concepts of consciousness for humans, right? We to begin with. So we have to we have to begin the discussion elsewhere. And so I'm really um, I'm moved by Daniel Heller Rosen's approach to thinking about the history of of a sense, the sense of of inner touch, the sense of aliveness of things. And he tells this remarkable story of the origins of the of philosophical conversations about consciousness, beginning not, actually not with the concept of consciousness and not in the human, but beginning with the understanding and inquiry into, from early Greek thought, inquiry and understanding into the, the sense of aliveness of beings. And this, this, the capacity of a being to sense itself sensing, to sense its aliveness. And for me, I'm uh, thinking with philosopher Merleau-Ponty, sensing is always the capacity for sentience. The capacity of an mm. organism or being to sense its world already is the promise of sentience. But, and but sentience, why is that the beginning point for community? So I, I'm not ah, here talking yeah. about the beginning point yeah. for life. So let's, I'm right, talking so about let's community. Begin, let's begin, so let's begin about thinking about how plants form community. And this might be a really important piece for us. Plants form community in the most incredible ways imaginable. So there is no such thing as a tree, right? There is a tree that enmeshed in the thickness of you know, this microbial fungal mat of soil that's alive with churning organisms and worms and remarkable insects. You cannot extract the tree from that. You cannot extract the tree from its pollinators. You cannot extract the tree from the people who harvest from that tree. You cannot extract. And so when you, when we rethink community around the kinds of practices, and we have to think about plants as practitioners, as active makers of a world who are actively corralling beings around them. They emit remarkable volatile chemistries to draw in their pollinators, to attract predators, to prey on the herbivores who are eating them. They have these incredible 
chemistries that they activate to lure humans as well as other beings and forming collectives around them. And so we could look to the trees as teachers for what community could be. And if we were to center human communities around plant communities, we would actually start to see this plant people conspiracy in formation. People would have to be in of service to serving the community of plants, which is serving the community of animals and insects and climate, right? So there's a, a rethinking about what community is by recognizing that the center of community for humans must hinge on supporting plant life for everyone. The way you've described community there doesn't require consciousness and it doesn't require sentience either. I mean, you could... Ah, but sensing but sensing is sentience. And so we sense each other. No, but, we but, have the capacity... But what I, mean is that, what I mean is there's no need for the tree to sense any of this, for your description of all of that to be true. Oh, all, all of that is based on sensing. So a plant can sense an, a specific species of insect who is biting their leaves, right? They, they can taste from the saliva of an insect who that insect is who that insect is, and they can call up through their incredible sensitivities. Uh, they can call in maybe a parasitic wasp to lay its eggs into that organism to sort of, or they can call up their own chemicals in their bodies to produce uh, a chemistry that will prevent that insect from digesting. So it all hinges on sensing. The human senses, the plant senses, and all these other organisms are forming communities precisely through their senses. And that is actually the core of community. If we can't sense some, another being around us and we're not sensitive to it or attuned to it or willing to accommodate it in our sensorium, it doesn't exist for us. And part of this work is about expanding what we think of as the human sensorium to include these other beings. Can I just can I just pick up here that I think there's a really interesting philosophy of language, which I feel is maybe kind of, you know, dancing around the edges of what it is that we're talking about. But there is a really interesting, I think, philosophy of language that develops along precisely these lines. And in many ways, it actually comes from Aristotle's very notion of the human being as the only thing that distinguishes itself, the only way that the human being distinguishes itself from the rest of that which is alive is the extent to which it speaks. Speech is necessary for humans, not because of a human superabundance of some particular trait, but because of a, a baser human deprivation of the richness of forms of communication and communicativity that the rest of the living world, in fact, has. What's different about the human form of speaking, why human speech is necessary, isn't, again, because it's the pinnacle of forms of communication, but because it is a peculiar form by which human beings overcome that which really is their curse, namely the tendency towards egoism. In other words, the tendency to cut the human off from its very forms of nonviolence, of reciprocity, of mutual cooperation, of sacrifice and redemption. This would be one way, for instance, that I think we could begin thinking about the human through the lens of uh, plant or tree community that would, if you like, displace somewhat the idea of the primacy or the centrality of the human. Language is our gift because of a prior curse. The use of language is to try to invent 
and construct and form those forms of non-egoistic dependency, cooperation, reflexivity, precisely because we are so deficient on those other forms of more natural, say, spontaneous, or even uh, simply self-giving forms of reflexivity and cooperation. That, for me, I think is a different way of imagining not just human language, but also it's a nice way of then reflecting on the practices of consciousness itself, consciousness insofar as it's the reflection on the very thing that we're trying to overcome by means of our language. Hmm. I, I don't know if that does anything for anybody, but. <laughs> I, will, I would say that, you know, I mean, you really need an expansive, we really need expansive um, notions of what communication means and what what it means to be articulate as a being and what it means to be able to, to communicate. And so plants are, are more sensitive than humans in remarkable ways. They have senses and sensibilities that are actually far more nuanced than ours. And they also have remarkable ways of articulating, making propositions in the world that are remarkably adept at communicating very directly with other beings. And so in some ways, you know, we're, we're tuned out of that. We've treated plants as if they're sessile, passive, you know, outgrowths, just sort of um, perpetuating in the understory, but they're, we're not engaging them as interlocutors. And there are people in the world who have learned how to listen to what it is the plants are speaking, you know, gardeners, farmers, herbalists, um, you know, hunters, scientists, artists, all these people who have tuned in to the loquacious chemistries, the, um, the remarkable chatter of plants that they are using to connect to the world. So the impoverishment, I, what I found is that the worst thing is that we end up using very impoverished concepts that mechanize um, and functionalize human capacities and reduce them to um, often very, you know, you know, psychology has this remarkable way of reducing mm. um, uh, human behavior to cognitive functions and uh, synaptic connections. But there are richer mod modes of communication that we, we could access if we were not so caught up and admired in models of communication that embody the sort of command, control, intelligence, coding structures of, of theories of, you know, that are coming from um, from recent days. So I, I would love to, you know, for us to really reckon with plants' capacities, their loquaciousness, their sensitivities and their sensibilities would be really, it's really about getting past this hubris of human exceptionalism, getting past these ideas that, that we know, that we are in control and that we actually have a command over what's going on. So there's an invitation, it's a, it's a humbling invitation to also step into a kind of not knowing not knowing what communication is, not knowing what sentience is, not knowing what a plant can do. Mm. We have to end there, but it's probably a good way to do it. Um, yeah. Natasha, thank you so much for lending us your considerable expertise uh, on this area. And you're right, Scott found exactly the right person. So. Hey, oh, nice. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> actually saying anything nice about me then. That was all about you. Well done. <laughs> no, no, it was, about, it was about your finding skills, Scott. I thought that was very impressive. Well done to you. All right. Sorry, Natasha. Excuse me while I give Scott a compliment because he has the knees <laughs> Wonderful, <time>. wonderful. <laughs> but no, I, I should also say, uh, just because someone's going to, I don't know, say something angry to me if I don't mention it, Richard Powers' novel, The Overstory, it is a very, very, very fine 
example, not just of plant communication, but also there's a fairly astonishing vision that develops over the course of the novel of what this kind of community may, may well look like. It really is quite something. Absolutely. See, Natasha, and I give is... Scott a compliment, and then he does that when we're trying to wrap. Oh, Do you see? <laughs> That's a footnote. That's just a footnote. <laughs> Wonderful. Wow. I agree. It's a fabulous book. Everyone should read it. Wow. And a review. God, you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> on the um, thanks very much, Natasha. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Great to talk with you both. Hope you enjoyed that, our discussion on the minefield of trees and the political community that could potentially and maybe even does exist uh, with them. That was Scott Stevens' pet project, I think, for the year. So I hope you enjoyed that. It's got another run, Scott. Clearly, you were at that meeting where we discussed <laughs> what shows we were going to play. Uh, next week. The, next week's fun. Really interesting idea. Uh, and I, I think it yielded some really interesting discussions to do with our relationship to artificial intelligence yeah. and particularly the way that a lot of them mimic what we might call smart wives and what the impact of that might be or the implications of that might be. So enjoy that for next week. Uh, we'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.